0: This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley.
1: And I'm Peter Sir.
0: And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. On today's programme, Death and Nightingales, a tribute to the writer Eugene McCabe, who died last month. And our Toaster Challenge guest will be poet Joe Woods. And Peter will be talking about Kathleen Jamie and her selected poems. So the coffee's made The
1: toast is on
0: And the books are on the table You're the first man he's ever brought in Like this When there's a deal that begins and ends Below in the yard I watch from the window
2: Whiskey And I'm a journeyman A stranger
0: What is it anyway? What? This deal Wants you to stand in, to buy or sell. Land, stock, anything. To use you.
2: The heartbreak of this place. Love it and hate it like no place on earth. Tomorrow I leave it forever. That child is not my daughter. She's not kin to me.
0: Say what it is that has your moody.
2: I think you know, sir.
0: I've never harmed you, Beth. Yes? I'm Liam Ward of Braga.
2: You have a problem, Liam? Three bombs exploded in London. The man we suspect is tenant of yours. Are you honest girl. Would you deceive me?
0: He's no one's fool.
2: He's foolish enough and he's drunk. Even the best of men can be the worst of blunders.
1: What did I do? He made my mother suffer. He should answer for that. Killing's a small thing. Getting away with it, that's not easy a Druid production of The King of the Castle and a BBC adaptation of Death and Nightingales. We want to begin this week with an appreciation of the work of writer Eugene McCabe, who died last month.
0: Yes, indeed, Peter. There were huge outpourings of sadness from the literary community on the 27th of August this year, when the outstanding writer Eugene McCabe passed away. He was a screenwriter, a playwright, a short story writer and a novelist. And he's left behind a wide ranging body of really powerful work that will be read, performed and loved for years to come. Before his death, Colm Trabin had said of Eugene McCabe that he only produces masterpieces. And since his passing, tributes have poured in, most notably from our president, Michael D. Higgins, who described McCabe as a writer who was able to capture the complexity of differing viewpoints and particularly of those confronted with bigotry and fundamentalism. And Eugene McCabe was also a member of sauna, and Kevin Rafter, the chair of the Arts Council, said Eugene McCabe was unafraid of complexity and nuance. He chronicled both the political and the personal with an eye that it was at once searing and humane. I sometimes think that
1: he was a rather underappreciated writer and perhaps not everybody is familiar with his work but can you give can you give us, maybe particularly for those who aren't aware of his writing, some some background about Eugene McCabe.
0: Yeah, I mean, Eugene McCabe, he lived a long life. He died at the age of 90. He was born in Glasgow in 1930 and his family moved to Clonus in County Monaghan in the early 40s. And he grew up near the border on the family farm. And where a writer grows up, I think, can have a huge impact on a writer's output. I mean, I'm thinking of Seamus Heaney and Moss Bond, the rural farm he grew up in in Derry. And for Eugene McCabe, living close to the border had a profound effect on his writing. He was intensely interested in the border's effects on people's personalities and lives. And I think this found its way very much into his writing. He worked as a farmer until 1966, at which point he began to focus full-time on his writing. But the farm was always important to him as a writer, as it was here that he developed a knowledge and a love for the land. And I think when you read his, his writing, you see that love of nature is really prominent in his work. It is. But isn't it also, I mean,
1: you said the border and I mean, he's very much, I see him as very much a writer of of that dark borderland. Can can you tell us something about about that? how the border affected his work.
0: Yeah, I mean, in the early 70s, he wrote what is probably regarded as his most famous set of works. It's a trilogy of television plays on the different traditions in Northern Ireland. Um, It was broadcast on RT in 1973. It was titled Victims, Cancer, Heritage and Siege, and it won a lot of awards. Uh, He also wrote The King of the Castle in 1964. I remember those plays. Uh, very well. I mean, I can
1: I can remember. I mean, they were rebroadcast a few times. I think by RTE, and they were, I mean, they really got to grips with the with the troubles of the time. I mean, they were ferocious. I mean, I remember the, the one about um, siege where where you know the kind of the IRA kidnaps you know a couple of people, and I remember the one about the UDR uh, man who is killed, and they were very raw. And, and direct and engaged and compelling and that kind of, you know, getting yeah. to grips with the politics of, of the day. Very immediate.
0: Yeah, and very brave as well, I think, to to write about that at the time and it received huge attention. I mean, do you remember King of the Castle as well, Peter? That came out in 1964. I do.
1: I remember King of the Castle. I remember various... I, remember, I seem to remember Niall Tobin in a production of it. And then, of course, we, we, be, we began mm-hmm. with a Druid production of it. But I mean, again, it's like a Greek play. I mean, here is this you know, hugely sort of successful kind of farmer, landowner, all the rest of that. But he's there like a Greek king because he can't get his wife pregnant. And so he, he brings in a man, a journeyman to kind of do the job f- for him, you know. So he's this kind of like, he's he, he's he's kind of cast. I mean, the neighbours all kind of despise mm-hmm. him and fear him. So it, it, it's an extraordinary piece, Scobber, mm-hmm. he's called and, the, and But no, it's a very powerful play.
0: He's great at getting to the heart of the complexities of rural life. And one of um, my favourite books was Death and Nightingales. I'm sure you've read that too, Peter. It, it came out actually in 1992, strangely around that time. Sure. I have to say it was a really brilliant time for Irish writing. Um, Dermot Healy had brought out A Goat Song just a few years after that. And I always associate the two novels as being one of the finest novels that came out of Ireland at that period. But Death and Nightingales um, was set in 1883. And really, when you were speaking there about King of the Castle and that kind of power that's going on in rural traditions, I think a lot of that comes into Death and Nightingales, too. It's a really superb achievement set in rural Ireland. It's nearly gothic in proportions. It's kind of a horror story. There's ghosts and graves and gruesome revenge. And um, old hatreds fester in this novel. It's a novel that kind of stays with you. It stayed with me. In fact, I'm going to go back and read it again and just really enjoy it. Alana Hopkin in the Financial Times said when it came out, anyone looking for an explanation of the roots of sectarian hatred will find it there. So, again, it's going back to what you were saying there, Peter. You know, it tells the story of uh, kind of hatred, really, between Catholics and Protestants. And I suppose, ultimately, the fact that we mustn't abuse love and we mustn't abuse trust. So it's,
1: it's, it's 1883 and it tells the story of Beth Winters. Can you, can, you, can you just fill us in a bit about the story?
0: Yeah, I mean, Beth Winters, what a great character. It's set against the really tough beauty of the Fermanagh landscape. And we enter the world of Beth Winters. She's a really determined character. It's her 25th birthday. She wants to decide her own destiny. But she's really charmed by the roguish Liam Ward, Um, They fell in love when they pulled a dead bull out of a ditch together. But unfortunately for Beth, she seems doomed to repeat the tragic mistakes of her family's past. And the novel's running theme is the clash between the Catholics and the Protestants. And Beth Winter's love entanglement with the young Catholic Liam turns out to be far from the romance that she hoped for. And Beth's family history is really complex. Her stepfather, he's sometimes quite a violent individual. He's called Billy Winters, is a staunch Protestant. And he married Beth's late mother, Catherine Maguire, a Catholic, when she herself was pregnant by a Catholic man. So it's quite complex. Um, And it's something that Billy, the stepfather, has never got over. Just as Beth's mother, Catherine, never got over the fact that the Anglo-Irish Winters family now own most of the land her family had owned for generations. So when Beth was growing up, she grew up as kind of a pawn between these two parents of hers. And so When the stepfather turns on Beth, she hatches a plan. So I don't want to give away too much, but it's a very dramatic story, which you do not forget. Liam, Beth's boyfriend, hates Beth's stepfather, Billy, for his power and wealth. And Liam asks Beth to act out against her stepfather in a way I don't want to reveal. But let's just say gradually Beth realizes that Liam is not exactly who she thinks he is. And there's a twist in the novel which shows really, I think, decades of pain and betrayal, which build to a really devastating, deadly climax. And Beth, I think, as a woman, is forced to become as ruthless as the men around her. And we heard Jamie Dornan in
1: the BBC adaptation of that, playing the part of of Liam in in the novel. But I wonder, because it's always great to to hear an example, would you mind reading perhaps a little of that book?
0: Yeah, no problem at all. And actually, you were mentioning Jamie Dornan there. He's known for his part in The Fall, but he did play a particularly macabre version of Liam um, in the film. I suppose you could nearly see it as a historical work of crime fiction. It's a real page turner. But yeah, I would like to read just the opening section. You see, I think about Eugene McCabe. He's a master craftsman. And the bit I'm going to read you, you'll hear that in the language. It's the opening page. It's Beth Winters' 25th birthday. She's waking in 19th century County Fermanagh and she's dreaming of poisoning her stepfather, Billy Winters. And there is also in the piece I'm going to read a reference to the nightingale of the title. A lack of bird call, a sense of encroaching light. And then far away, the awful dawn bawling of a beast in great pain. For a while it stopped, as though birds and ditch creatures were listening, respectful of approaching death. Then she heard the beating of her heart and saw herself in Billy's study reading about medieval medicine from the chemist and druggist, 1880. A cure for insomnia. The milk of a human female placed on the forehead will induce sleep. Place the heart of a nightingale under the patient's pillow. Poisons, aconite, arsenic, ergot... Oil of bitter almonds. The Reverend J.H. Timmons, vicar of West Malling, was acquitted on the 18th of July of a charge of manslaughter. Defendant believed the teaspoon of oil of bitter almonds administered to his wife was oil of sweet almonds. In the dark pantry off the scullery, she was looking into the hanging press full of veterinary medicines and gadgetry and yes, there it was. A small, pale, yellow bottle labelled oil of bitter almonds with a separate label which said poison. She put it to her nose and sniffed. The astringency of death invaded her lungs. As she watched herself pouring out a teaspoon for Billy's protruding tongue, her whole body began to shake. The teaspoon trembled, spilling, and she woke to the bawling of a beast reverberating round the stillness of her bedroom, then a dark silence.
1: And that was Enda, reading from Eugene McCabe's Death and Nightingales. I suppose, and I mean, the only criticism you could, you, you could make of Eugene McCabe was that he perhaps didn't write enough. I know he said himself that I write very, very slowly and I throw a lot of stuff out. But maybe we might wish that he didn't throw so much stuff out. I mean, he's such a powerful and complex and interesting writer.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I I actually feel he was prolific, actually. I mean, as I said earlier, he he has actually produced so much that will last. And we didn't mention his short fiction either. It included the novella and stories Victims, A Tale from Fermanagh. I remember reading and really enjoying Heritage and Other Stories, which came out in 1978. Christ in the Fields of from Anna Trilogy, Tales in the Poor House, Gallery Press published that, and Heaven Lies About Us. That came out in 2005 from Cape. So I actually think he actually achieved an awful lot. So I'm going to disagree with you there, Peter.
1: <laughs> OK, well, I hope we've given readers and listeners enough material to pursue an interest in uh, a fantastic writer, Eugene McCabe. Thanks, Enda. This morning's Toaster Challenge guest is poet Joe Woods. Joe is the award-winning author of three poetry collections, Sailing to Hokkaido, 2001, which won the Patrick Kavanagh Poetry Award, and together with a second, "Bearings," was reissued by Daedalus Press in a single volume entitled Cargo in 2010. Ocean Letters was published in 2011, followed by Monsoon Diary in 2018. And just a couple of things that have been said about him. Elaine Niquilinon, for example, his voice is easy, melodic, Seeming sometimes casual, sometimes deceptively smooth, but always alert. Another one, the strength of the poems lies so much in their alert, poised to the sub- subtlest nuances of melancholy nostalgia, present absorption and timeless epiphany. And that was from Matthew Clegg. And I think that's one of the things that's interesting, I think, for our purposes this morning, is the alertness that um, Elaine praised is often rooted in the observational keenness that comes from movement and travel, whether that's driving to Delvin or sailing to Hokkaido or browsing in a bookshop in Rangoon or trying to come to terms with a new life in a new country, a new language and culture. So widely travelled, Joe lived in Japan in the early 90s and has travelled extensively and often in Asia. He's edited various publications, including with Irene The Angelis, Our Share Japan, an anthology exploring the influence of Japanese poetry and culture in general on, on Irish writing. He moved to Myanmar in the years leading up to the democratic elections there. He now lives in Harare, Zimbabwe, with his family. So maybe that's possibly a good point to begin with, Joe. Just this whole notion of, of travel and the way that's affected, I suppose, both, both life and work. But to begin with Japan, I mean... Because Japan was the first, I suppose, place outside of Ireland that you lived in extensively and it left, clearly left a, a big mark on you.
2: Yeah, very much so, Peter, because I suppose it was my first, yeah, a big kind of first sojourn abroad or first, time first, I mean, it was a couple of years, I think from 91 to 93. And, you know, I suppose for me, it was when I went there, I, I kind of was very much a kind of an apprentice poet and uh, you know i was i was searching around for you know scribbling here and there but never never quite you know never quite quite finding a kind of a theme or, or or a form and i suppose when when i arrived in japan kind of it's a long story but kind of almost accidentally and i I, you know, I had absolutely no preparation in the language. I think I knew one word, which is "ringo," which is the Japanese for apple. And I just, uh, you know, kind of found myself uh, in some ways. You know, I was working there, I was teaching there, but also found myself adrift to some extent, adrift in a in a in a difficult and complex language. And did you did-, man-
1: did you manage to get a handle on that?
2: Well, I, the funny thing is I studied it. I studied Japanese, probably studied Japanese more seriously than I studied any language. But I think my Japanese teacher said, uh, as you know, Japanese people are very polite. But like at the after after about two years with, with, with this teacher, she said, uh, you, you know, you, you really are the, the worst student I've ever had. So but but I, I, I kind of I think it made made me in a weird way, kind of examine English in a in a, in a weird way, and kind of made me. also was probably because I was teaching English, but it 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 made me kind of kind of go inward in a certain way. You're a, a kind of at home in your own little language bubble, I suppose. And then it's interesting you say that because I, I kind of forgotten, but my first poem, the first poem that I had published was was in Japan. So I, it was for me, it was kind of a rite of passage and. The the whole thing of being abroad and looking back and examining things.
0: Joe, I had the wonderful pleasure of reviewing your recent book of poems, Monsoon Diaries, for uh, the Dublin Review of Books. And that's gleaned from your travels over the last few years, this time living with your wife and young daughter, Eliza, in Myanmar. I particularly loved the first poem. It's just 21 lines of seven compact verses. We're immediately presented with the start of Yangon's relentless monsoon season of the title. And if I can just quote uh, the poem, it says, it starts as a single applause on the Zinc roof rising to the fury of white noise. I really like those lines, and I'm just wondering, just how did the relentless rain of this season and living in Myanmar inspire you?
2: Well, it's, it's, it's funny uh, you should pick on, on, on that end uh, because the, the the monsoon it's kind of regarded by the by the Burmese as very it's it's a kind of a romantic time. You know, in a sense, and I, I know various poets will kind of allude to the monsoon as being a time of, you know, it's kind of romantic and it's kind of slightly surreal and gothic. But when I arrived with, when we arrived with with our two year old, uh, we actually arrived in the middle of the monsoon, and I found it incredibly oppressive, and I had this impression that we were going to a hot country. Because we'd been to Burma before uh, at the right time of year, so it's, it, it's it's a very it's very strange. It's 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 a funny season, but it is kind of strangely inspiring. You know, it's kind of oozing atmosphere. Mm-hmm. You in know.
0: a way, I'm kind of jealous. I would say <laughs> you got so many brilliant poems out of it, Joe. Uh, but also in the book, other far-flung and native destinations are prominent: in it. Uh, the South Pacific, China, Chicago, Asia, and even Loud Westmead and Meath and Kerry are just some of the places described. But to me as a reader, I really felt that the strength of the book was not just in the physical journey. I'm thinking of Henry Miller saying one's destination is never a place but a new way of seeing things. So in your book I felt it was the emotional thing of the death of your father for instance, the birth of your child, poems like biography with this waltz. They're all particularly heartbreaking. So it was an emotional time for you as well, wasn't it Joe? I I suppose
2: because I I
0: there was a quite a gap
2: between the the last book and Monsoon Diaries, and uh, you know I suppose w- 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 the you know, birth of Eliza was I, I I kind of often think it was like that Rilke notion of you know you must change your life and I'd I'd had we'd we'd had a kind of a relatively stable life for about you know twelve years before that and then suddenly. In a strange way, I suppose we just decided we we had this sudden window, an opportunity to go to to go to Myanmar and we just thought we'll take it. But I suppose, you know, what you're referring to as well is with my, you know, when my daughter was born, my father passed away at exactly the same time. And it kind of, yeah, it did, it did kind of uh, you knew some serious change was going to come, come about. And I suppose it was. You're, yeah, you're right in in seeing that kind of there was this kind of emotional. Yeah. kind Yeah,
0: of, I mean, those lines. Um, and so in early react. April, she arrived all safe and perfect. And you let go of the reins, duty done, a last responsibility seen through. Wonderful lines there, remembering your father just when Eliza was born, an emotional time
2: yeah and it, it 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 came to a point i mean during those years you know that i i i wrote so many kind of what i would call dead father poems that i i almost had to kind of create a poem with the voice of my father saying you know enough mm-hmm. enough <laughs> of your of your dead mm. father, poems, you know, because it became a kind of a, it became a kind of a trough at one stage that I I couldn't quite get out of, and 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 I think that was yeah, it was all part of of the book and it's it's it's. Trajectory, oh, it's a wonderful
1: book. And then you and your family moved to Zimbabwe, Joe, and what was that experience like?
2: Well, uh, it's been very interesting. I think sometimes uh, Burma and or Myanmar is often mentioned in the same. In the same um, breath as uh, Zimbabwe, as kind of uh, to some extent basket cases, so we 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 can't, we have a predilection for these places, but I suppose also I I never you know although well travelled I remember thinking you know I I leave Africa for 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 the next life you know that I I didn't really see Africa as part of the you know on the horizon and and it's been a, a complete revelation I, I really really love it and and i love the country like the people and then suddenly kind of woken up to being being there for 5 years at, at this stage you know and,
1: and it's a and, and it's a difficult period isn't it i mean it's not an easy place to live it's,
2: um, it's very yeah i mean we've we've been there kind of through the you know i, I sometimes think it's funny because we kind of experienced the stasis of of you know a dictatorship in the, in in the form of uh Mugabe we experienced that stasis then we experienced the coup and the you know the the presumed reform and and yeah. now it's kind of back to you know it's the kind of Nietzsche's endless <laughs> cycle you know that you but 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 at the same time life goes on you know and it's it's a beautiful country it's it's a be, you know and and you know That's... ultimately it's where we've we've made our life for these past 5 years and that that really grows on you
1: and Joe, clearly, it's affected your writing too. And in fact, you've brought in a new poem about Harari that you're going to read for us.
2: Yeah, I'll just I'll just read this poem. I suppose it's it's inspired. You know, I think I think the the next book uh, will very much be I think set in Zimbabwe and that kind of you know usual toing and froing between Ireland. But I think it's very much yeah. I, I I've been very much rooted in, in the place and. Yeah, I'll read this poem and it starts off with a, with a line from one of one of my favourite poems by Austin Clarke, which goes, For the house of the planter is known by the trees. Sweet suburbs of Harare and their bungalows that are known by the trees, parades of purple jacarandas, ponciettas and flame trees, and beyond their boundaries, swords of green edging to the road, with sprinklers levitating, even even in dry season. And the sweeping swish sweeping by liveried gardeners always in blue who bid boss or sir to my passing good morning or who pause and chat among themselves in front of compounds whose walls are topped with sometimes sizzling electric wires and unforgiving electric gates that snap shut after a glimpse of the interior. Every avenue looks the same, and were it not for the colour of ornamental trees, you could get lost among the reassuringly foreign street names Sandringham, Churchill and Windsor.
0: Oh, Joe, thanks for that. Beautiful new poem. The house of the planter is known by its trees. Our dog is lying in his basket here snoring. I don't know if that's a good or a bad sign, Joe, but perhaps he loved it as much as we did. And thanks also for talking about your new book of poems, Monsoon Diaries, published by Deadless Press. Well, I think we're totally warmed up now, Joe, for the toaster challenge. Are you ready for it? Uh, Peter's getting the, the bread ready. So. <laughs> the coffee um, is is definitely on and we're ready to put the bread <laughs> down. So you've brought in a book. I won't reveal what it is, but I'm really excited uh, to talk to you about this because it's a favourite of mine too. So we're getting ready. We have the toast. We're putting it in. One, two, three and off you go.
2: So today I'm bringing to the breakfast table the book A New Path to the Waterfall by Raymond Carver. And uh, I suppose, I suppose it, it, what you bring to the breakfast table all depends on, you know, what time of the year it is or or whatever, whatever, you know, the way you have so many different kind of choices and, and things. But recently, um, a friend of mine asked me for a poem for um, her father's memorial service. And, and I remember actually when I was in Poetry Ireland, I was always... We're always getting calls uh, for for poems for births, marriages, and deaths. You know, I used to call it the Office of Births, Marriages, and Deaths, and this was this is actually a very popular poem that that we 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 used to we used to offer. And I suppose recently it made me think about that book and just how important it was to me and uh, uh, such a marvelous book. But I, I'll just I'll just read that poem. It's, it's very short and it's very. Ca- very pertinent, I think, to the book, Late Fragment. And did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so, I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth. And that's, it's a wonderfully popular poem, but the book is is very interesting. It's, I encountered it, I think, uh, the year it came out, I think I picked it up in Dublin, and it it it's posthumous. Carver Carver died in 1988, and at the at the then what I thought the very old age of 50, he died of he died of lung cancer, and uh, no, he's he's primarily uh, he's a wonderful wonderful uh, short story writer, and and he was renowned for that within his li- within his life but he was also he had this kind of strange fidelity to poetry and he he was a really really wonderful poet and it's interesting that when he was in his in his last year he decided that he would devote his time the time that was was granted to him in preparing this book this book of poems and he did it with his his last his his last wife and muse Tess Gallagher whom he he lived with for the, I think the last 10 or 11 years of his life and she, he referred to those years as gravy. You know, they they were the kind of the gravy years, and it's it's just a marvelous, marvelous book. It's it's uh it's it's the poems are conversational, they're they're just quirky, they're just every they're, they're just fantastic. And for me, I think I was probably in my early twenties when I encountered it. He did what William Carlos Williams does. He, he made it appear easy. He, may, he made it, you know, for an apprentice poet, he kind of, made, he kind of uh, made it look like you could do this, you know, because he had this wonderful free forms. And
0: he. yeah You're absolutely right. Geron. Sorry to interrupt you there. Um, I'm <laughs> nodding away here because you're on a road. <laughs> we, we, we unfortunately have to bring an end to that toaster challenge. And Peter um, is waving the clock there, but that was such an enthusiastic response to a book, which I'm sure is a favourite of many other people. I'm thinking of Edna Longley. And uh, she said in the London Review of Books that a carver poem instantly establishes its presence. And I remember that thrill of reading the introduction as well by Chess Gallagher when she described their final days together, how they rushed off to Reno to get married. And many of the poems as well were, is this correct Joe, they were, he had taken passages from Chekhov and he'd cut them up into poems. And then, of course, when he died at the age of 50, as you, as you said, uh, the New York Times wrote, American Chekhov dies.
2: And also he had uh, Milwash poems in, in, in interleaving the, the book, which is very interesting. And that, that, I think that was my introduction to, to Chesla Milwash's poetry as well. You know, there was a, there was a wonderful kind of uh, generosity about, ab- yeah, about there the book. Was.
0: And as you said, an honesty and he made it look all so simple. Well, I think actually we've reached the, the end there of the toaster challenge. I'm... We're both uh, hugely pleased that Joe Joe Woods, or Joseph Woods, uh, was here with us today. And all details of Joe's, Joe's book and Raymond Carver's book, A New Path to the Waterfall, will be available on our website, www.booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. So, Peter, what have you been reading this week?
1: I've been reading Kathleen Jamie's Selected Poems, which is published by Picador and, well, it came out a couple of years ago, but it's a generous selection of of her work to date.
0: And Peter, can you tell me a little bit about her?
1: Sure, I suppose, well, some basic biographical facts. She's born in Renfrewshire in Scotland, studied philosophy in Edinburgh. She was awarded an Eric Gregory Award when she was... Nineteen, and she used the money to travel to the uh, Himalayas, for instance, and she used those experiences to to write travel books about a book about Pakistan and a book that was published as Among Muslims Meeting at the Frontiers of Pakistan. And actually, this is something that comes back into her work. You know, so prose indeed remains important because she's well known now as well as a poet, as an as a an essayist, a writer about nature in books such as
0: Findings and Sightlines and surfacing. Yeah, but, I remember reading those. But it's really, I think, her poetry that you keep going back to. Yeah, I
1: mean, I suppose like, I mean, she's now, I mean, she's very well known now. I she's established as one of the leading Scottish poets of, of the day. And she's sometimes described as, you know, a feminist poet or a nature poet or a travel writer or as a Scottish poet. But she kind of resists that categorisation. I think that's, one of the things that makes her interesting is that you know she doesn't fit easily into any of these categories. What I actually value is maybe her particular way of seeing and speaking, her particular tone, her if you like angle of attack, her phrasing, her verbal energy, mm-hmm. all the things that are really hard to describe, but that make us want to go back to a poet. But at the same time, I mean, she did, she has said herself, you know, I have what Robert Louis Stevenson called a strong Scots accent of the mind. Mm. And my constellation of interests seemed to include the natural world, archaeology, medical humanities and art. And to produce work, I've walked and sailed many miles and benefited from the company and expertise of visual artists, pathologists, curators, ornithologists and so on. Birds and whales, she, she also mentioned.
0: But uh, just to keep it chronological, the early poems... Let's have a little chat about that because she she published when she was very young and there's a great story about how she got published isn't there? She
1: left the manuscript of her first book on the doorstep of her publisher and then 2 weeks later she had a letter from him saying, "Oh yes, I I uh I like these. Let's publish them." And those poems are included in this selection um you know from the first collection kind of Black mm-hmm. Spiders. Black Spiders is the title poem, Women in Jerusalem. And you know all the like the early poems are they're very strong they're very kind of bravura they're they're, they're kind of cool as well People, you know poems like Mister and Missus Scotland are dead would be a, a well known so it's kind of slightly slightly cool slightly distanced uh, in in a way I suppose for me it starts to get really interesting as she develops I mean I love the the collection Jison for instance
0: mm-hmm. and it
1: starts you know like a, a poem like Crossing the Lock from that book remember how we rode towards the cottage on the sickle-shaped bay that one night after the pub loosed us through its swinging doors and we pushed across the shingle till water lipped the sides as though the lock-mouthed boat mm-hmm. you know lipped lip the sides not lapped I think yeah, that's
0: Yeah I like that it's kind of mysterious isn't it?
1: It's mysterious and it's kind of precise and urgent and it kind of pitches the drama of the moment against the unlived future, if you like.
0: there are poems I think she's great at writing poems of huge simplicity and directness too. would you agree?
1: They're very musical as as, as well. I mean, I suppose an example of that kind of poem would be uh, Lochen almost like a Derek Mahan-esque opening. When all this is over, I mean to travel north by the high drove roads and car tracks probably in June with the gentle dog roses flourishing beside me. Yeah. You know, that, That's that kind of thing. Or, or what about um, a poem
0: like St. Brides? Would you, would you read a piece of that for us, Peter?
1: So this is women's work, folding and unfolding, be it linen or a silky skin tucked behind a rock. Consider the hair in jizzin'. Her leveret's ears flat as the mizzen of a ship entering a bottle.
0: That word jizzen, I mean, is it an old Scots
1: word? It's an old Scots word, I think, yeah, for for childbed. It's a reminder of maybe that, you know, the poet's true linguistic allegiance and is maybe a signal of, of the kind of energy that comes into the work uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, there's, there's great poems there. You, you know, Meadowsweet is a fine, angry poem based on the tradition that certain Gaelic women poets were buried face down. But we also get to the poems, if you like, about nature. Uh, But what's interesting about them uh, is the way she kind of comes at it. I mean, there's a lovely poem, Alder, for instance, um, which begins, Are you weary, alder tree, in this the age of rain? From your branches through clots of lichen like fairy lungs. Won't you teach me a way to live in this damp, ambiguous earth. It's kind of like that surprising address, but also very precise language and, you know, if you like the the kind of stately procession of it. And, you know, there are poems that are often startlingly clear. There's a lovely one, which is called The Dipper. Mm -hmm. It was winter, it's very short. I'll just maybe just read that. It it was winter near freezing. I'd walked through a forest of firs when I saw issue out of the waterfall, a solitary bird. It lit. On a damp rock, and as water swept stupidly on, rung from its own throat, supple, undammable song. It isn't mine to give, I can't coax this bird to my hand that knows the depth of the river, yet sings of it on land. You know, so it's just that kind of that kind of musicality. Uh, if
0: yeah, you and like. I, I, a poem of hers I really love is Pipistrelles about the bath. Oh, yeah. She, it, oh, yeah. That's, I presume, that. in that book. What a that's, wonderful that, that's, poem.
1: That's, that's, that's in that as well, yeah.
0: Yeah, and it's got the, the trees standing around watching them. Oh, it's so beautiful. And the word pipistrels as well. You're speaking of musicality in her work. Yeah, Even yeah. The title of that poem has just got such wonderful music to it. But, Peter, she's not a poet who writes a lot, is she? No, she's
1: quite parsimonious about it. I mean, she's often gone, she said, uh, you know, for years without writing a poem. And you know, she said that she can spend up to six weeks, maybe writing a single poem. And we 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 all know that feeling, but yeah. you can see that in, you can see that in the craft. Of it. On the other hand, you know, you get a set of poems like "The Bonniest Company," which was published in 2015, and she gave herself the challenge mm-hmm. of writing a poem every every week. And in yeah. that, there's there's a poem that for me sums up her thinking about poetry. She loses her copy of Machado's Soledades, and she finds it under a beech hedge in her garden and it's mm-hmm. open at a particular page yeah. uh, as though the breeze uh, riffling through had spotted his own name among the master's lines and they are the deepest words of the wise man teach us the same as the whistle of the wind.
0: Yeah, the deepest words of the wise man teaches us the same as the whistle of the wind. Yeah, that, that they're beautiful lines. Well, one of my favourite poems, I mentioned uh but a, another very characteristic kind of Kathleen Jamie's is the overhaul from the book of the same name. So you're really wonderfully telling us about her work, Peter. But I was just wondering, could you tell the listeners a bit about about it as well, the overhaul?
1: Yeah, again, it is, it's, it's one of my favourite poems too. It's very much a poem about waiting and about patience, I suppose the kind of patience that you need to write as well as to live. So she sees a boat out of the water for, for repair, the overhaul. Look, it's the lively hauled out above the tide line up on a trailer with two flat tyres. What, 14 foot? clinker built and chained by the stern to a pile of granite blocks but with the bow still pointed westward down the long vaux, down towards the ocean where the business is. Inland from the shore a road runs, for the crofts scattered on the hill where washing flaps and the school bus calls and once a week or so the mobile library. But see how this duck egg green keels all salt weathered, how the stem taller like a film star than you'd imagine, is raked to hold steady. And it it finishes, hey, Lively, it's a time of life thing. It's a waiting game. Patience. Patience.
0: Mm -hmm. It's always interesting where her poems take us, isn't it? I mean, always the unexpected And driven by a very strong sense of where she is at that time. She situates us really well, doesn't she? So, Peter, in poetry classes that I teach, I've often used her seven lessons for writers. I know you have as well. Um, They're kind of interesting, aren't they? And I was just wondering, for anyone out there who wants to write or is interested in writing poetry, can you tell us a little bit about the ideas that she puts forward? Um, And, you know, the kind of it is sometimes quirky, I think, the advice she gives us about writing poetry.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I'll just mention these very briefly. I mean, the first, the first one is allow connections to occur, and you know, it's like it's because you know poetry is all about making connections. Um, mm. She says, "One might as well, one might well look up from sorting the socks and hear the cry of an oyster catcher. Why should those things be separate?" Is 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 the idea? Yeah. Um, so that's so that's one connections. The other thing is, you know, be exposed. It says like. The sense of being open like a, like a cormorant drying its wings, she says, and she says, you know, you have to pay very close attention to detail and don't refuse whatever strikes you as banal, you know, it's just, Mm -hmm. you know, again, it's it's about attention
0: attention. Um, she also has something about notebooks. I mean, you know, writers go on and on about their notebooks, but actually Kathleen Jamie, I like her kind of feisty approach. She says, don't use a notebook. Isn't that right?
1: <laughs> I have to say, I've never used a notebook in my life. I can't. I'm, in, I'm incapable of, of, of using notebooks. Maybe she feels it's kind of just distracting. Uh, but her main thing is, like, it's like the poem I just read was about patience and she, yeah. um, you know, one of her tips or hints or um, Notions is have patience. And, yeah. you know, she and again, in that she she talked about having to spend seven years writing, writing a slim collection, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And kind of related to all these is refuse pigeonholes. Like she doesn't yeah. like, you know, being classified or um, categorized. And, you know, she just says, you know, she's been called this, you know, a woman writer, Scottish writer and so on. And, and then a nature writer. You know, nature writer. And she's, you know, so she's just kind of. But she also says, you know, as for as for as for writing about the natural world, this is natural. She says, as having a body yourself, and anyone who doesn't engage with nature is deluded. Yeah, you know. So that's I
0: think, yeah, it's good advice. She also said, look closely and listen hard, which is something I really, really agree with. And yeah, I says, lo- yeah. doesn't she say something like it's that quality of attention that I aspire, aspire to, that I want to emulate? Um, she does.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, what like I I always like this poem where she was at a, a boring meeting in. University and people were there with her spreadsheets and their fake kind of jargon filled talk and all the rest of that mm-hmm. and she runs out and she kind of, she lies down in a field of bluebells and she kind of says, you know, that was that was in a poem called An Avowal but she says she wants to keep in with the bluebells, not the spreadsheets.
0: Yeah, know? it's really nice. I mean that idea, her, when her, I think it's her seventh point, she says pay attention to the moment but don't forget yeah. about deep time yeah, because I think about deep time
1: is 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 important. Like it's all those archaeological layers and that fascinate her, you know, signs of previous civilizations, dug up bones, caves, all that sort of stuff, mythology. It's immediate time, but deep, deep time as well.
0: Mm mm-hmm. Well, Peter, thanks for that. Um, That was Peter talking about Kathleen Jamie's Selected Poems, published by Picador. And all details are available on booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. Um, And I'm Enda Wiley and I have Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again?
1: Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, um, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this uh, podcast, you can go to booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com.
0: And yeah, so... We'll be back again next Thursday morning. We'll have the toast on. We'll have the kettle boiling. We will have more books to discuss. And we're looking forward to having you here. So goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.